Hey everyone, uh, you. I apologize for the the intro here. I forgot to bring my microphone. I'm in a hotel room uh, in New York City. Uh, it, the interview still sounds great. This is just for the the little intro where I ramble on. Um, this is a wonderful interview today with Hodinki. I'm I'm. Uh, you'll see a little bit of a theme. I am fascinated with how people make decisions in different categories. Uh, in different industries, and uh, today we talk a little bit about the <clears throat> the watch industry. So, anyways, thank you so much for listening. As always, check out makingthebrand.co, share it, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, love you. We'll get right into it. Thank you. And then when I was 16, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who I, I really admired, um, gave me one of his watches right off his wrist uh, when I was about 16. It was an Omega Speedmaster that, that it was his. Uh, and that, was, that kind of set me off on the path of really loving this stuff. Welcome everybody to the Making the Brand podcast. My name is Billy Draper. I work in early stage venture capital. And on this show, we're gonna be talking about brands. We'll talk to founders and leaders of growing consumer companies that are finding ways to stand out, differentiate, and delight their customers. On today's show, we have Ben Clymer, founder and CEO of Hodinkee. He teaches us about the watch industry and the responsibility of being the source of truth in the space. So today on the show, we have a very special guest. We have Ben Clymer, the founder and CEO of Hodinkee. Um, ben, thank you so much for coming on. No, it's my pleasure. Happy to be here. So to start out, what is Hodinkee? <laughs> that, that, that's a really good question. What is Hodinkee? Well, first of all, Hodinkee is a word that I made up, uh, truly, truly made up about 10 years ago. You know, I was starting a company and starting a blog, really, that had to do with, with watches, so, so timepieces. Uh, and I knew even back then that the, the watch industry, you know, mostly based out of Switzerland, um, had a really tenuous relationship with, with, with um, the Internet. And by Internet, I meant basically anything technological. So all technical things the watch industry did really not get on board with. And so if you Googled, you know, watches or if you wanted to buy a watch online about 10 years ago, the only sources were, were either fake you know, sellers of fakes or gray market, which means they're not even authorized by the brands uh, to sell the products. Uh, so if you, you know, if you went onto these sites, there'd, there'd be something called Luxury Bazaar, or World of Watches, etc. These guys were, were all selling stuff. You know, they weren't breaking the law, but they also weren't kind of, you know, abiding by the same kind of best practices that the industry was, was really well known for. And so I realized very quickly that if I did anything along those lines by using the word watch in the, the URL or the name, people might mistake us for, for somebody like that. And so I, I came up with the word Hodinkee. Uh, Hodinkee with a Y on the end means wristwatch and check. That, that is really kind of playful and kind of silly. But, you know, back then, this was really just a blog. It was something to, to kind of bide my time with when I was bored at work. Uh, that, that really, I felt, you know, kind of brought watches back down to size. You know, if you've ever been into a luxury watch boutique in New York or Paris, Geneva, any, you know, any major metropolitan area, you realize how seriously they take themselves. Uh, and Hodinkee, with a name like Hodinkee, you really can't take yourself all that seriously. And that, that's, that was by, by design. And how, what got you excited about watches 10 years ago? How'd you end up sort of in the watch world? 
Sure. Yeah. So, you know, even even before 10 years ago, I was interested in mechanical things. So my father uh, had given me a light meter. You know, he was a, an avid photographer. And back then you needed a light meter to to meter your light you know, as you know, for exposure. Uh, and my grandfather as well was a photographer. So I had light meters around as at an early age and I thought, wow, this is a really neat thing. It fits in the palm of your hand. It's got a gauge and a meter on it. It's cool. And then as I grew up and got older, I went into Boy Scouts and I was big into hiking and camping and, and uh, orienteering, things like that. And I got into compasses. After compasses, the, the next stop was, was mechanical watches. And, and watches, you know, again, you have engineering, you have design, you have art, you have wearability and ergonomics. Uh, you know, watches were a big, big kind of fascination of mine as, as, a, as a younger guy. And then when I was 16, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who I, I really admired, um, gave me one of his watches right off of his wrist uh, when I was about 16. It was an Omega Speedmaster that, that it was his. Uh, and that was that kind of set me off on the path of really loving this stuff. But, you know, I, I didn't think there was any money to be made. I didn't think I could really do this for a living. Uh, so I went the traditional route of uh, management consulting and then finance. Uh, and so I, I worked at a consulting firm in New York and then I worked at UBS, the big Swiss bank, uh, until 2008 or nine, which is when I started Hodinkee. And uh, and you know, I was really kind of dumb luck. You know, the, the financial crisis of 2008 was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it really, you know, it, it made UBS kind of reevaluate how many employees they needed. And basically my entire group was laid off. Uh, and with that coming, I, I realized that I had a lot of free time and I started writing about watches. And now now here we are. And how long between you getting that first watch as a gift from your grandfather to you buying your first watch? So I probably didn't buy my first real watch. And by real watch, I mean, you know, like, you know, $500 plus mechanical watch until my first job, you know, my and my first job was uh, you know, I was 22 here in New York City, a consulting job. And that, that watch, I, I bought an Oris, I bought a Maurice Lacroix. Uh, you know, these were not really, really high-end watches at all. Um, but, you know, they were over $1,000, we'll say. And, you know, to, to most people and to, to any intelligent person, that's a crazy amount of money for a watch. Um, and so, you know, it, it wasn't really until probably 2008 when I was really starting to cover this world semi-professionally, but really as, you know, as a, as a side hustle uh, that I that I really started to spend money, my own money on, on, on watches. And I bought a vintage Omega at an Anticorum auction in 2008. I had no idea what buyer's premium was. I didn't know I had to pay taxes on it. Uh, you know, it, it was a crazy, crazy learning experience when every dollar really counted. And and talk a little bit about the progression of Hodinkee over time. So you started as a blog. And what does yep, it look so what does it look like today? Yeah, now, I mean, now we, we have an online, you know, an online site, you can call it a blog if you'd like, but, you know, a digital kind of magazine of, of content created specifically for the web. We have um, a YouTube channel that is, that is really popular. We have a print magazine that's done twice per year. We have an original podcast series. We have an amazing team of designers and developers that build digital products uh, for people in the watch world. Uh, and then we have our shop and our shop is the largest retailer of watch accessories in the world. Uh, you know, we sell somewhere around 30 or 40,000 watch straps per year. Um, all Hodinkee branded, Hodinkee designed. Uh, we collaborate with several of the largest watch brands in the world from Omega to IWC, which is coming out this Wednesday, uh, to even Hermes, um, you know, on, on products that, that we kind of co-design and then retail online. And this is all done online. Uh, and it's with the exception of the magazine, of course. And uh, it's really a wonderful business. You know, it's a business where we get to work with people that we really like and admire. And, you know, for me as the creator of, of Odinki, to be able to to put our name or the name of something that we created on, on a product, for example, with Hermes or Omega is, is such a dream come true. I mean, I've been a lover of this stuff since, since I was a kid. Uh, and so it's really a wild thing. But I mean, ultimately, this site began as, as a journalistic endeavor, uh, you know, a blog in the truest sense. So we were on Tumblr to begin. Uh, and then I applied to journalism school here in New York uh, to do a master's degree. 
uh, somehow was accepted and, and kind of did that for two years, which is when I started hiring freelancers. And then I graduated uh, from J school in 2012 and kind of went, went off to the races uh, to build this into a real company. And when did you do your first, uh, your first partnership? So our very first partnership was actually not a watch. It was a tie. Uh, and that was a little bit lower, uh, lower lift, you know, so we did a Thai collaboration with Drake's of London, who's a great, you know, kind of menswear, you know, standard kind of uh, tailor. Uh, we did that in probably 2011 or so, uh, maybe 2012. And again, it was it was a set of two ties, 50 each uh, that were uh, inspired by two vintage Rolexes that I own. So these beautiful kind of black and gray uh, kind of, uh, you know, neutral colors with cream dots. And they sold out really quickly. I mean, even back then, really, really quickly. And said, hey, we might have something here. And then we said, you know, a few years later, let, let's try something with a watch. Uh, and then we kind of went off to the races, did did a collaboration with MBNF, which is a really, really high-end independent watch brand. And then we went on to Vacheron and Zenith and, and Omega and IWC and Tag Heuer and all these great brands. Uh, but it, it is it is a really fun part of our job to be able to work with brands like that. And how do you – you're in an incredibly powerful position in the watch world for watch collectors. You've sort of become the, the, the source of truth or the stamp of approval. How do, sure. you, how do you balance that responsibility? So I, I've, I've noticed you often answer questions with, you know, you, you don't like to, to necessarily uh, call attention to a single watch or a single model. Sometimes mm-hmm. you'll list a number of different brands at once. You've been very good about uh, not sort of abusing your ethical power, I guess. Sure. But how do you manage that? How do you manage those decisions? Well, you know, it, it's one of those things where, like, you know, I, I, I just respond as, as me. And, you know, I was raised as a person that, that wants to treat people you know, respectfully and, and be honest and sincere with people and, and, and not offend. And I think what, what we do is I, I take our position within the watch world very seriously and as do those around me. And I want to be clear, this company is much, much, much larger than just me at this point. And I've, I've surrounded myself with people of, of the highest integrity. And I think if, if you do that, you, you kind of set yourself up to, to do the right thing always. And so certainly, like, you know, we have an editorial team that is the best in best in the English speaking world, at the very least. Uh, and we have a shop team that is also the best in, 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 at what they do. And, you know, they, they do talk. We're in the same office, but there's basically an, uh, an invisible divide between them. And they really don't impact each other in any meaningful way. And I think also what you realize very quickly is that. By having a shop, it allows you to do things that, that other publishers wouldn't be able to do. And that, first of all, we have money, right? So we ha- we're making real money here. Whereas a lot of these niche publishers, you know, they're trying to survive on advertising rates that are that are abysmal. You know, ad, ad rates, uh, you know, some of our peers charge $5,000 per, per page in a magazine, which is just, I mean, you can't you can't build a business on that. Uh, and it's something that we, even even when it was just a one or two person company, that's not ever anything we wanted to do. That That's not how to, you know, you're, you're basically not taking yourself seriously if you're willing to sell a, a page for for that, that type of rate. Uh, you know, we know that we have an audience that is meaningful, that really cares about this stuff and also has real discretionary income. So we treat them with the utmost respect because they deserve to be treated with the utmost respect. These people are not dumb. In fact, you know, the, the average reader of our site has a master's degree or higher and makes over $300,000 a year. These are not dumb people. You know, so I think if we started to abuse our power, or our authority in any way, they would be really quick to catch on and they would they would revolt. Uh, and, you know, there, there's one of those there, there's a, there are times when. You know, people have said, oh, well, they've got edit and they've got sh- uh, the shop side. And like, yeah, we do. But I think if we, we treat them the exact same way. So on the edit side, we only write about things that deserve to be written about, which is really unusual in the luxury space where you're pretty much at the mercy of these watch companies. Uh, and on the, the on the commerce side, we only sell watches that deserve to be sold. And if you look at a lot of our, our bigger brands, so we, we sell Tag Heuer, we sell Longines, we sell Zenith. 
a lot of these brands have thousands, literally thousands of different SKUs. And you go to our shop and we, we're only selling 10, 10 or 12, you know, most 20 SKUs of any of these mega, mega brands. And that's because these are the SKUs that we believe in. And if you treat commerce and you treat what you're doing on the sales side as, as in the, with the same integrity that you that you treat the edit, you, you know, people will begin to realize that, like, OK, it makes sense that they're selling X, Y and Z because they can look us in the eye and say these are these are worth your money. And do the brands try to get you to promote their you know, new releases or have you sort of set the precedent of, hey, you know, we're only going to talk about X, Y and Z. We're working with X, Y and Z. And and how do you I, I guess the question is, how do you manage that I imagine there are brands all the time trying to whether it's partner with you or whether it's get some advertising space on the yeah. site. How do you manage yeah. those relationships? Yeah, I mean, excuse me. It, there, there's no question that that we you know, editorially we cover everything, and you know it has nothing to do with what we do on the commerce side at all. It's not like we're only writing about watches that that we sell on shop. That is just not not how we do things. Right. We cover everybody, and and that is how it will always be. And you know we are the largest watch kind of news site in the world. And there's a reason for that. And we will, you know, we do, we've got Joe Thompson, who's been covering the, the industry for 40 years, talking about, you know, basically Swiss exports, you know, not a really inside baseball type of thing. And then we've got Cara writing about Rainbow Daytonas, and we've got Jack writing about Grand Seiko's. We really try to hit every side of the industry, whether it's, it's beneficial to us or not. We're, we're, we're journalists. And I think that is what really differentiates us from a lot of our peers is that, like, I went to journalism school. So did our head of content. So did our managing editor. Like, we really take this seriously and, and in a very different way than other folks. And I think, you know, in the beginning of my career, you know, blog was, was a four letter word, literally and figuratively, you know, it was really looked down upon to be an online writer. And then you say, wait a minute, like these guys went to good journalism schools, they're taking things a lot more seriously, the, the, the quality of the output is significantly higher than even the, the guys in print. Why should why should they be be treated the same way that other these these bloggers are treated, which is basically like they want to get a free trip to Switzerland and they're doing this in their underpants out of their their parents bedroom, you know. Uh, and so, you know, we, we really treated things and take ourselves more seriously in terms of journalism than, than anybody else there is. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we write about what we want to write about. We, of course, want to you know make people happy and, and, and work with people that are doing good things. But we have no problem saying to to a brand or publicist that it just doesn't make sense to cover them. And something, something else, I guess I should say, that I've noticed about you is not just the brand of Hodinkee, but also your, Ben's personal brand. It seems to be very well uh, curated, for lack of a better word. Is that something you, you think is important for Hodinkee, or is that just is, is that intentional, or is that something, you know, you're very um, thoughtful about what you post on Instagram. You're very thoughtful about uh, how you handle yourself uh, on Talking Watches, which I Highly recommend for anyone who hasn't seen it. That is Hodinkee's uh, YouTube TV show. Um, is that something you, you you think about, or is that just who you are? Well, I, it's just who I am, really. You know, I mean, I it, it, I won't I won't lie and say I never think about it. And I've actually I've kind of given up Instagram um, for for a little while. I just found it to be a real time suck, and I did that at the first of the year, and it's now been a month, and I have to say. It's, it's been a game changer. Uh, so to not have to worry about what goes on Instagram is, is something of a relief. But, you know, in terms of how I handle myself, it's, it's just who I am. You know, I mean, the, 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 the company Hodinkee is a product of who I am as a person. Uh, and that is somebody that doesn't take himself too seriously, but also at the same time wants to do a great job and wants to really help people and, and, and give them something that they enjoy. You know, and so who I am on Talking Watches is, is probably a, a pared down version of, of who I am. You know, I'm, I'm far more reserved on camera and we edit it to make my, you know, make me look a little bit more reserved than I actually am on camera. 
Uh, and on Instagram, again, you know, even though I'm not on it currently, like, you know, who I was there was, you know, it was it was me. Like I what I do is on the weekends, I spend my days taking pictures and driving vintage cars. I what I don't put up there is, you know, a lot of pictures of my family and a lot of pictures of my friends. And, and that is a part of the world that of, of my world that that is really valuable to me. And, you know, so much of my life is is public and exposed to this community. And I'm, I'm proud of it and happy for it. Uh, but there's some things that, that you know, I, I like to kind of keep to myself. Well, that's I mean, I think that's part of the reason Hodinkee works is because you have, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 people who are actually obsessed with watches. Um, that's exactly it. And it would, I don't think it would work nearly as well if they didn't have you at the, at the helm sort of living it. And so I think that's, uh, I don't know. I think that goes without saying, but I think you do a great job of managing the brand and also living the brand. Yeah. And, and that's it. And, you know, I think, you know, Will, who, uh, you know, was, is, was our second employee. I went to, to journalism school with him. I mean, he's often said like this works because at least for the first six or seven years, I lived and breathed watches. I mean, really to almost a detrimental way from, from my own personal life. You know, I really was part of this community, whether it was auctions or the SHH in Basel world or meetups or certainly the web. You know, I was the watch world. I was there for everything. And I think that that is why this thing was built in the way that it was is that you know there, there's nobody could ever say we weren't sincere in our love of watches for sure and you know as the company grows there there's certainly more people and things change a little bit and i still love watches more than ever i mean i bought a watch 48 hours ago um you know so it's it's but i, I will say that the, the overarching kind of you know mo behind what we do is exactly that it's enthusiast driven enthusiast created for enthusiast consumption uh, and we just we're lucky in that the group of enthusiasts has continued to grow uh, to grow wider would you, would you ever get outside of watches? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, if, if you read our magazine, you, you already see that we cover stuff outside of watches, cars, photography, art, architecture. I think there's a lot of stuff that we could do really well and apply the same model to. But I think first and foremost, we want to kind of see this through with watches. And there's still a long way to go with watches before we kind of dip our toe anywhere else, at least, you know, commercially or editorially. But I will say, if you haven't yet, check out our, mag- check out our magazine. We've done some amazing stuff on cars and art and, and some design products uh, that I think, you know, are, are really do a great job. And I think I think in many ways. That is what a lot of our guys and gals would like to be doing is, is doing stuff a little bit more broad. But the thing is, you know, we realize that we, we really are in a wonderful position in the watch space and we wouldn't we wouldn't want to lose that by by kind of dipping our toe elsewhere. And how have you funded the business so far? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the business was was my own up until 2015 and that I, it was self-funded. It was profitable from day one. Uh, in 2015, we raised a little bit of venture capital. Uh, we did so with with the help of uh, a man named Kevin Rose, a man named Tony Fidel, who are, are pretty you know well known entrepreneurs. Jason Free, Tony Conrad, who have all become really close friends of mine, and we did that because Hodinkee already had a great brand in the watch world, and and these guys really understood how special it was because they were consumers of it, they were fans of it, um, and you know it's one of those things where I wanted to build a team the right way in my own way, which means I didn't want to sell the company, I didn't want to raise a ton of money. I wanted to do things organically. And so what we did is we raised just enough money to hire a few folks. And all those folks were people I knew. I knew Cara Barrett from when she was at Sotheby's. I knew Jack Forrester from when he was a writer for, for Revolution. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And we just brought in people that I knew would do a great job. And so, you know, we still have investors now. 
uh, some of them large, some of them small, some of them institutional, some of them private. Um, but they're, they're really all of our investors are friends. And I think that that's what makes us different than, than most of our, our peers, which are either you know individually held entities, which is great, uh, but small uh, or or, um, you know, large, you know, like media companies, which is which is not what we are either. And I, this is still a mom and pop business in a wonderful way. And that the decision making is done by myself and a handful of others that, that have been here for a long time. And and you mentioned your your average customer makes over three hundred thousand dollars a year. Where are you finding your customers? Are you spending at all on marketing, or is it all word of mouth? Yeah, it's all word of mouth. I mean, the thing is, like, we we cover stuff in such an astute way that the people that people that are drawn to it just fit a certain a certain kind of mold, and that that person is typically highly educated, and you know, at times relatively successful. Uh, and because of that, you know, we don't actually have to spend on marketing. You know, we, we don't we don't do that stuff. Our our entire e-commerce business is built upon the audience that that we have on the edit side, which again we don't we don't pay for at all. Um, and I think if we did begin to pay for stuff, the quality of our audience would go down. It might be bigger, but that that's really not the game. I mean, you know, the the idea that like the more traffic you have, the bigger business you have, it just doesn't compute. You know, we see lots of our peers that have much larger audiences than ours really struggle to make a living because their audience is not transactional in any way. You know, if people run an advertisement on, on Hodinkee.com, that will work. That will drive sales. We can actually prove that. Uh, and I think that that is what the power of Hodinkee is, is, you know, we see about a million uniques a month, which is not huge for, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but a million people that make $300,000 plus and want to spend money on, you know, things that, that basically serve no purpose, right? I mean, these watches are not being prescribed by doctors. These watches are for fun. And so if we have an audience that large and that wealthy that, that wants to buy things that they don't need, that's a pretty powerful audience. And how big is the company today? How many people work there? Yep, we are 34 people, 34, 35. We just had a, somebody start today, actually. Um, and that, you know, we're based out of New York City here in Soho in a, a great kind of loft space. We have a few engineers and customer service folks that are in the U.S. but not in the city. That's just because they don't, they don't need to be. Um, but yeah, we're about 35 people. And that's split evenly between edit commerce and kind of you know design and development uh, and that includes ad sales people administrations like that but also actual designers product designers and digital designers as well as engineers and how do you like new york as a startup city i love it i mean i mean this, this company i've often said in in other interviews that, that this company would be nowhere without new york city and you know some of the biggest breaks we've had have come from meeting other journalists you know in the early days and telling them about what we're doing and you know other people in media and luxury uh, without New York City, Hodinkee doesn't exist, at least in, in its current guise. And I think, you know, I, I, I love New York. I'm from upstate New York. Um, and just the excitement here is just, you know, magical. That, that said, would I would I mind having a country house outside and, you know, being able to relax a little bit? Not at all. Um, but uh, but New York is a very special place. And for the time being, it's it's where I need to be at the very least. And you mentioned you're not thinking about selling. What what would you consider to be a successful outcome for the business? Or do you just see this as something that just grows and compounds over time? I think it's just something that will compound over time. I mean, I think there's so much, excuse me, left to be done. Uh, you know, look, I mean, the, the idea of an exit is, is interesting, certainly, uh, but it's not our goal. And, you know, I want to do something. I want to build a company that is sustainable and multi-generational and does things the right way. And, you know, it's I've been lucky in that this company has has, has been great to me. Um, and you know, we, we're, we're doing okay. And I, I don't ever want that to change and I don't ever want the culture here to change. Uh, so if it means kind of, you know, playing this for the long haul, that's great. If it means selling it tomorrow to the, the perfect partner, that's great too. But you know, I, I, I'm not one of those folks that, that will say anything kind of in a blanket statement saying, Oh, we will sell it for sure. Or we won't sell it for sure. I, I don't think that's reasonable because you just never know what's going to happen. You know, you never know where your priorities lie, uh, personally, professionally, et cetera. 
so uh, for the time being, we, we are really proud and really happy with the business that we're building right now. You know, if things change in the future, then things change. But, but right now, it's all, it's all about growing what we have. And what is some, I guess, if you could go back 10 years in time and tell yourself something when you were starting the business or if you could give advice sure. to another entrepreneur who's starting a business today, uh, what would you say? It would be find partners earlier. Uh, and by partners, I don't mean freelancers. I mean people that can really help change your business. And over the past few years, we've hired a few folks that have really, really changed things for, for, for not only us as a company, but me personally, because they've been able to take things off my, my desk. And, you know, I was such a lone entrepreneur for so long, even though we had a few a few folks kind of helping out. Uh, it, I really didn't understand how helpful people can be. And, I'm, you know, I have always been aware and self-aware of my deficiencies, uh, you know, my productivity deficiencies. But when you really meet somebody that is master of operational excellence or of commerce or whatever, you really begin to realize how bad you are at those things. And I mean that in a, in a, in a kind way to myself. You know, I, I, I did all this stuff myself. I did ad sales myself. I did all the retail stuff myself. And I did a pretty good job. But then you meet somebody that's great at it. And all of a sudden you realize how, how, how special something like that can be. So if I had any advice to, to myself or any young entrepreneur, it's, it's don't be egotistical. Don't think that you can do all this stuff on your own, especially when you don't need to. Uh, and I think that that would be my, my one piece of advice. OK, I think that's great advice. And I think that's something people often get caught up in their own you know, worlds. And you and if you're not getting constant feedback in general, I think people are protective of their ideas. They're protective of, you know, they're worried about, oh, someone else taking their idea. And I often give similar advice, which is share it. You're not going to get any feedback yeah. from your customers or from anyone. And you're not you, you're not going to build this perfect thing in in a vacuum. Um, that's exactly right. That's and, exactly right. And I, I think, you know, being open to other people's feedback, which thankfully I always was, but, you know, really allowing people to 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 be to participate in your business in a meaningful way would be really helpful for sure. So now on to some fun questions. What is sure. what's what's your you know, you are, as I said, a very uh, thoughtful guy. You're inter interested in collecting. You're interested in travel. What is something mm -hmm. that's on your bucket list? <laughs> that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I, I really want to live in Europe, uh, for, for a while, probably Italy. Uh, you know, I've spent so much time there. I've spent so much time in Switzerland and France and, and Italy itself. Uh, but I've never lived there. And I think spending like, you know, months there, if not a year, I think would be something I'd really love to do. Uh, and I would love to do it probably outside of a major city. I think anyway, you know, maybe find like a, a country house or something like that over there to live in for a year and really, I mean, still continue with their dinking, continue to work, but really get to know a foreign area. Uh, and I know Switzerland very well. I don't know that I would want to go there necessarily, but, you know, somewhere in probably Central Europe, I'd, I'd love to really you know, take up residence for a little while. That would be great. You got to do it. I'm, <laughs> I probably will. I don't know when or how, but, you know, it's thankfully I, I have friends all over the world and, you know, I, I would love to, to have an existence that's a little bit different for a little while, for sure. And if you weren't running Hodinkee, what would you be doing? That's a really good question. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, practically speaking, I would probably still be working in management consulting or finance or something like that, probably wanting to, to, to hang myself daily. No offense to those, uh, you know, finance bros out there. Uh, but it's one of those things where, you know, I, I always knew that I wanted to do something on my own. I didn't know what it would be. I would like to think that if Odinki didn't come along, I would have found my way into another, you know, kind of wonderful situation like this, but maybe not. And, you know, I had some of the smartest people I know have tried and failed to launch businesses. And, you know, the one thing you have to remember is how lucky we all are to be in a position like this uh, in any way, you know, and, and that's why I think, you know, again, some of the best piece of advice I've ever received from from other entrepreneurs is, you know, Odinkin is, is over 10 years old now. And 10 years for an entrepreneur is a long time, especially for somebody to be working on something like this. 
And I've thought about sipping back at times, and then even my friends would say, like, you got to understand, like, you know, lightning doesn't necessarily strike twice. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it'll strike a dozen times for the right people. But when you have something special, you really want to make sure that you see it through to the end. And, you know, I'm so thankful that I've listened to that advice in those brief moments where I thought, oh, maybe I should go try something else because Hodinkee still has a long way to go. And it's still such a brand that, I, that I'm so proud of. Um, so if I wasn't doing this, hopefully I'd be doing something else equally interesting. But I, I don't know that that would be the case. So I'm super thankful to be to be here. And what is your favorite watch that you own today? Oh, man, <laughs> that, that's actually the hardest question of the day. Uh, if you want to choose no, three, that's acceptable also. Sure, that's fair. Uh, I don't know. I mean, so I've, I've got, a, you know, I've got different watches for different reasons. Obviously, the Omega that my grandfather gave me is the watch that spawned this whole thing. You know, I mean, that, that's a really that's a really special thing to me personally. It was special before it created Odinky. Still is now. I mean, that without that, it, I wouldn't have this this great life. I wouldn't have the cars. I wouldn't have any of the, the, the fun stuff that I have or even the, the intellectual fulfillment that I have. So that's by far number one. Uh, I've got a really early, you know, in terms of objects, I've got a really early Rolex Daytona 6239 that I just adore. I've got a Paddock 2526, which is the first self-winding uh, watch that uh, it's in white gold instead of in yellow or rose uh, with an enamel dial. It's really beautiful. But the watch that I've been enjoying the most recently uh, is a Rolex uh, triple calendar moon phase, which is called an 8171 uh, in stainless steel that I bought from a friend. And it's really just a great uh, it's a great wearing watch. And it's something that that you know it doesn't even look like a Rolex, really. Uh, and I think that's part of the charm. But it is. Uh, so the 8171 is right up there for me right now. And is there one, is there a, a grail watch, I believe they call it, where that you've been looking at for years that you think one day you're just going to pull the trigger? You know, it's it's funny. I've, I've had grail watches over, over the years, and, you know, I'm, I'm able to say that some of those watches were, were, were attained at, at times. You, you finally realize that, like, once you cross a certain barrier in terms of in terms of value it starts to lose some of the fun uh you know when you have a watch that's in in you know the six figures and above and say i, I kind of feel icky about this and you kind of feel like wait a minute like you know if i fall and this thing shatters that that's that's more than just like a, a nominal loss this is a significant loss and i i think the one thing that has allowed me to kind of like you know continue to, to be thankful for this is, is staying grounded uh so i i have i have a few times purchased my my grail watch uh, and in, in more cases than not, I end up selling it within within a few years just because I'm not comfortable with it. So right now I'm really, really into buying modern watches of a more appropriate or more kind of like, you know, you know, run of the mill price point. So, you know, below twenty thousand dollars, below ten thousand dollars, because they're fun, they're easy and they I'm creating the history with me. Uh, you know, so a lot of these watches are vintage. And you're basically buying somebody else's history, and, and that's cool. You know, I really appreciate that from a design and collector standpoint. But I'm also really interested now in building my own legacies with with these things. And so, for example, I mentioned I bought a watch within the past 48 hours. I just bought a steel Daytona, and I bought it with a black dial. I've had it with a white dial, and it's just a cool watch. And you know, I will get it engraved, and I'll never sell it. And I think, you know, hopefully, you know, Lord willing, I'll, I'll have children one day, and I'll be able to give this watch to one of them. And I think that that is worth a lot more to me than than acquiring any you know million dollar Grail watch or anything. I was just going to ask about if you have any clever plans for for giving your children awesome watches or, or buying one the day they're born or whatever the case may be. I, sh- I most certainly do. Uh, you won't be surprised to learn that I think about that stuff often. I'm, I'm something of a sentimental guy, and you know I have several watches that are engraved with my initials on the back in the year when my when my nephews were born, my sister's children. 
I bought them both watches, uh, and I engraved them uh, with their initials and mine uh, that, that 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 day with their name on the paperwork. I, I really believe in the power of of, of gifting these these things because you know I, I bought my, for example, when my first nephew James was born, I gave my sister a steel Daytona that I bought brand new, and I said, "Hey, you wear this, wear it every day or as much as you want until James is eighteen or twenty five, whatever you want to do, and then give it to him." And then that watch will have lived the exact same life that, that he has. And I think that's a pretty neat thing. And I, I would like to do that with, with my children if, if I have them someday. Yeah, I, I always think about things like that, too. It's so fun to be able to because I always think, oh, when I was turned 21 or 25 or 30, you know, it, it would be great to just have some some relic um, to, you know, remember a different time or the thoughtfulness of a different time or whatever it was. And, you know, yep. across across collectibles. Um, that's exactly it. That, that's exactly it. And, and, you know, again, these are things that, you know, who knows, maybe my kids won't care at all about watches and that's fine too. You know, it, it's one of those things where it's just something that, that I want to do and I believe in, so I'm going to do it. And if they don't care, cool, that's fine. And then, you know, so, so be it. Maybe we'll give it to a grandchild. And I think that that's the one thing that, that I think a lot of people don't process about my story is that like, this all began from a gift from my grandfather. And had he not given me that watch, this never would have been. And so you realize that how everything matters. And so maybe I overindulge a little bit and buy a lot of watches and hopefully give them many things. But, you know, maybe I give my future son or daughter a watch when they're 18 and they don't give a shit. They don't care at all because they care about getting into college or, you know, smoking weed or making out with a girl next door or whatever. Uh, but, you know, 10 years later, maybe I'll give another gift. Maybe that watch will change their life. Uh, and I think that that is why I tend to overindex on on things like this. I want to have many opportunities to change the lives of those around me in the same way that, that mine was changed uh, with, with a gift from my grandfather. Who is someone that you would love to have on Talking Watches that you have not yet had? <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, you know, I, the, uh, the person that is mentioned the most these days is Ellen DeGeneres. She's got a, an amazing collection of, of really special Rolexes and, and Pateks. She would be wonderful. I'm just a fan of hers in general. Um, you know, Eric Clapton has long been a collector of, of watches. Uh, he's a, a, you know, a little bit older now, kind of more out of the game, but I think Clapton would be great. Um, you know, th- those are two that, that are often brought up and I, I'd love to have either one of them. So if you guys are listening, you know, give me, give me a shout. Do you know if Ellen is a, uh, a customer of the site? Uh, I, I don't know, to be totally honest with you. You know, I've got some, some shared acquaintances from Rolex and, and, and John Mayer and a few friends like that. And I believe that, that she's aware of it, but I, I can't say for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would believe that, that, that you know, the, the, we are kind of the destination for, for watch folks. So I would like to assume that there's probably some overlap there. And a, an adjacent question, if you could choose anyone in the world to represent Hodinkee, who would it be? So, you know, uh, you have a 30 or a 60 second Super Bowl commercial, you get to pick anyone to be in it. Who is it? That's a really, really good question. Uh, in terms of celebrity, that 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 would be a really difficult one. You know, it would probably be. It would probably, to be honest with you, I, I would hate to steal from our friends at Omega, but I think I think Clooney is is a great ambassador. But I think even more than that, I think uh, somebody like Buzz Aldrin, you know, not necessarily Buzz specifically, but somebody that has accomplished something in a, in a meaningful way far beyond those of, you know, entertainment, you know, in, in an explore, in an exploratory way or an intellectual way, but has some, some celebrity clout. And I think, you know, the, the first response internally would be, you know, somebody like a, a designer, like a Mark Newson or something like that. But I feel like it's a little too esoteric. I think somebody like, like a Buzz Aldrin, uh, you know, that, that represents kind of the greatest accomplishments of, of mankind, but still has some kind of like pop relevancy, I think would, would be a great ambassador. That is a great answer. What do you and la- lastly, do you have anything else to plug? 
Uh, nothing to plug, so to speak. But I mean, you know, Hodinkee and, and what we do on the shop is is really a special thing. I don't think, you know, a, a lot of times people are, are really as aware of it as they should be. And that, you know, what we do with, with new watches is, you know, we offer an experience that is so different than everybody else and that you can buy your watch with Apple Pay. It'll be there the very next day anywhere around the world, assuming FedEx delivers on time, which they usually do. It'll, it'll come insured. We'll do digital storage of paperwork. It comes with an additional year warranty that we pay for. It'll come with at least a $250 gift. We really want watches to be fun, and I think that is something that, that this industry really misses on, is that like a lot of people think that like people need this stuff, and I'm the first person to admit that nobody needs this stuff, so it should be fun. If it's not fun, why even bother, you know? And so, you know, I would say give the, the Hodinkee shop a chance, uh, and I think you'll, you'll be pleasantly surprised. It's, it's a pretty neat thing. Hodinkee.com uh, and Talking Watches on YouTube, right? That's right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was great. This was a real treat. Um, and, and best of luck. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, to If you haven't already, please rate and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you choose. Uh, and check out all the episodes on makingthebrand.co. Uh, to hear some interviews that we have done in the past and I will continue to update them in the future. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks again, season two. We are off to the races. Love you all.